You're listening to episode 60 of the Tennis Files podcast, a preview of Tennis Summit 2018. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, I hope you're all well.、Uh, I'm really excited to announce、uh, Tennis Summit 2018,、uh, which will be happening、uh, starting on April 25th、uh, until the 30th. And as you all may remember, last year I hosted the Tennis Techniques Summit、uh, with over 30 world class coaches, and it was all about technique. And this year I've actually expanded it to cover、uh, four different critical topics, which is strategy, technique, fitness, and the mental game. So I gathered、uh, some amazing and incredible coaches and experts, including Paul Anacone, Gigi Fernandez, Craig O'Shaughnessy. Alistair McCaw, Dr. Mark Kovacs,、uh, and, and several other、um, you know, just amazing coaches. And、uh, for you know, about six days of uh, fantastic uh, presentations and interviews. And you can check all that out at tennisfilesummit.com. So that's T E N N I S F I L E S S U M M I T.com. Uh, and you can also alternatively also go to tennisfiles.com slash summit18. And so, what I wanted to do for you today is to just kind of give you a preview of、uh, what we have in store. And obviously, the summit is all videos, but you know,、uh, for purposes of the podcast, I just wanted to provide you、uh, five different audio clips,、um, portions of those、uh, presentations,、uh, so that you can kind of get a glimpse into what Tennis Summit 2018 is all about. And so I have for you、uh, five clips from,、uh, from Paul Anacone, Gigi Fernandez, Alistair McCaw, Dr. Mark Kovacs, and Jeff Rothschild. And so they all touch upon different、uh, subjects. And、uh, the first one that I'm going to play for you is、uh, Paul Anacone's session where he talks about、uh, lessons learned from、uh, the greatest players in the world、uh, of whom he's coached. Which include Federer, Sampras, and Tim Henman. So I hope you enjoy uh, this clip uh, from Tennis Summit 2018、uh, upcoming、uh, with Paul Anacone.、Um, obviously, you know, we mentioned、uh, Roger, Pete, and Tim. I kind of wanted to,、uh, to dive in with、uh, Tim first and just want to ask you, you know, what character trait or traits in particular made Tim、uh, such a, a world class athlete? You hit the nail on the head. He was an amazing athlete. He was a great mover.、Um, one of the lightest people on his feet、uh, in terms of around a tennis court back in the day when he, you know, when people actually came to the net often in tennis.、Uh, Tim was great at that. He was a great volleyer. He was very athletic, tremendous hand eye coordination. And I think one of his best attributes that people don't really know is he's one of the most optimistic people around. He really appreciated and appreciates life and enjoyed what he was doing. And I think that helped him deal with、um, 
pressure, it helped him deal with failure and success. And I think it drove him on a day-to-day basis because he had a good time doing things. Um, But that athleticism and that movement and the ability to be so good at the net were probably his biggest strengths. That's great stuff, Paul. And obviously, you know, there was a lot of pressure. I mean, he had several semifinal results at Wimbledon and other places. And I was wondering to, you know, how you kind of saw him deal with that, like that huge pressure really of just, especially playing in, in his home court. Yeah, it's, it's, it was hard. You know, he, you know, uh, obviously before Andy Murray, so he had a ton of pressure and, and, he every time Wimbledon came around, you have to realize England is a is a country with a ton of newspapers and a ton of tabloids, and so you know there was a a lot of rhetoric and there was a lot of speculation, pontification, all this stuff every time Tim would play. And he's a caring, sensitive guy, and I think it's I think it was really hard on him. Um, one of the things I tried to implore him to do was to not look at the press particularly kind of the month before Wimbledon until the month after Wimbledon so that he didn't have to deal with the monumental highs and lows um and so I I you know people often talk to me about you know and there's a lot of folks that I've heard from England too say you know he that he wasn't a success he was a huge success um he would be one of my models of professionalism, one of my top, because he got to be ranked four in the world. And that's probably where his talent was. He wasn't as talented as Andre or Pete. He wasn't quite in that category. He was just below that. And that's where he got. So his macro goals, I think, were achieved. The micro goal of winning Wimbledon or an event wasn't achieved. Um, and he had, you know, he had a few tough losses to Pete. Um, he had a tough loss to Goran Ivanisevic in the finals in 2001, I believe, Wimbledon. I'm sorry, in yeah, 2001 in the semifinals to Goran. So that was a tough one. But did he do anything glaringly wrong? No. And so my whole philosophy um, is, you know, my dad taught me this, which is, you know, whatever you're pursuing, you want to exhaust all your resources to give yourself the best chance to achieve those goals. And I think that's exactly what Tim did. And and so for him, I would think he sleeps quite well at night. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he definitely gave it his all. And, and so with Tim, you know, obviously you mentioned, uh, just like you, he is uh, such a great servant volleyer. And I'm curious, um, especially maybe if there's a few takeaways from his servant volley game, you know, what in particular did he do at the net or any sort of um, st- uh, strategy that he employed at the net that made him such a, successful certain volley uh, player? Well, technically his volleys were really sound, both forehand and backhand. Um, His um, movement at the net uh, is incredible. I mean, unbelievably light on his feet, um, really has incredible anticipation. um, And most importantly, he understands all of the angles and ways to cover the net. He was a great mover after the volley. So he covered the shot that most likely was going to happen next extremely well. So when you combine all those things, it's a pretty good recipe to become a great volleyer. Gotcha, Paul. And so how did, um, how did Tim kind of differ from Pete in maybe his demeanor or, you know, how, how uh, he looked, uh, you know, before a match or anything like that? Um, I, I think Pete was much more introspective, a little bit quieter, a little bit, 
more to himself. Tim's a very gregarious personality um, and enjoys lots of people and being around lots of people. But both of them were very, you know, they both of them were very professional. There's no, I didn't, you know, both guys were really good about preparation, equipment, mental, physical, um, nutritional. I, there wasn't really much of a different in that area. And so when I look at all the different players, Roger, Pete and Tim, and, you know, even Sloan, the people that I've been around, you know, everybody's preparation, their personality traits are different, but they tick the boxes in terms of being prepared. You know, are they mentally prepared? Are they nutritionally prepared? Have they done all their work? Um, is their mind focused? So there's different ways to get there, but as long as they get there for their personality, for me, that's a, that's a check in the box. Good stuff, Paul. And so um, maybe a tough question, but what, uh, what do you think uh, was the key to uh, Pete's, uh, Pete maintaining the number one ranking for so long? Um, I think he became really comfortable there. Um, I think it took him a while. You know, he told me it took him a while after he won the U.S. Open in 1990 to get kind of clear in his conscience what he was playing for and why. And, and first, it was mostly about trying to win as many majors as he could. Um, and then all of a sudden, he started, he became number one. And then all of a sudden he was on track to break Jimmy Connor's record of being year end number one, five years in a row. So Pete inevitably did it that sixth year. So Pete did it six years in a row at number one, which he thinks, and I probably would agree that that might be his greatest accomplishment because you kind of only get one chance at that. You know, you can only be six years in a row. Number one, probably no matter how long your career is probably only once the grand, the major totals for Pete at 14 was spectacular, but you play four a year. So if you don't win one, you have lots of other chances. So we, we've had some interesting conversations about that, which I find uh, very provocative. Um, but the biggest theme is he got comfortable being number one. He didn't stress out about it. You know, he didn't sit around and look at the ranking points every week. Um, he knew that if he maximized uh, the major events, then he was probably going to finish number one that year. And so he really just kind of went through his process in a really thoughtful manner, like he did everything else. And like I said, became comfortable at number one. That's a, it's a tough phrase to grasp, but to understand what it feels like to be number one and be okay with it without panicking, without looking over your shoulder, without worrying, without being neurotic. I mean, it's, it's a hard position to be in. It's great but it's also complicated and it takes a unique person to manage that. And Pete did it very well. That's great stuff, Paul. And so you mentioned in a, a previous interview that uh, you haven't really, you've never really seen a, a, an athlete uh, greater. I'm sorry. You've never seen a, an athlete have greater focus than uh, Pete Sampras uh, out of pretty much anybody you've coached and, and that he was able to focus during the most critical and pressure packed moments. So, I mean, what in particular helped Pete to be able to, uh, you know, focus in these moments? I think he really understood his environment. Like, I think Roger's an incredible at it as well, but they have very different environments. Like Roger's environment is very busy. Federer has a, you know, he's a global icon. He embraces who he is much more than as a brand much more than Pete did when Pete played. And Roger came to grips and has come to grips with it. 
And when Roger's on the court, though, he's very good about keeping things, you know, in a mono focus and tunnel vision. Pete, in order to do that, wanted to keep his life outside the courts pretty much like that as well. So when Pete got into the biggest moments, he was very clear about what he did well, and he didn't let anything jeopardize that. And, and ultimately, he got to the point in his career where he really believed. He's one of the, you know, he's one of the few athletes. Rogers like this too now, but there's very few athletes. There's a big, you know, there's a very common phrase that says, "Oh, it's going to be really fun out there. I'm going to enjoy this." But I can tell you firsthand when I walked on the center court at Wimbledon playing Jimmy Connors, it's frightening. It's hard to really enjoy that. And I think the greatest of athletes really do. So it's one thing to enjoy it. It's another thing to really trust your skills in that moment. And that's what Pete did incredibly well. In the biggest moments, he just, he just felt he's going to come up with the biggest shots. And, and that's a hard trait to teach somebody. And I think he got better at it because he was there so often. That's great stuff, fine. So were there any um, maybe non-tennis things that Pete did that helped him develop his, his focus even more? Um, I mean, did he, for example, read or do anything artistic or anything like that? No, I, I, think, I think Pete kind of embraced who he, who he was and who he is. He knew he had to have a pretty controlled environment, didn't like a million people around all the time. He was very organized and very methodical about his structure, Um, he enjoys sports and appreciates excellence and athletes that excel. So basketball and football players and people that excel, he enjoyed that. But I I think his, really his understanding of himself was one of the biggest driving, um, factors is that he knew what he liked in his life and what he didn't. And he kept it pretty simple. All right, that was some great stuff from Paul Anacone. And now I want to play a clip for you from Tennis Summit 2018 uh, that's coming up uh, in about uh, a week from when this episode episode is published uh, with Gigi Fernandez, who is a 17-time uh, Grand Slam champion, which is pretty incredible uh, in its own right. And she also reached number one in the world in doubles, uh, obviously, um, and also attained a very high ranking, I believe, top 20 in singles. And uh, she's going to talk um, to you about uh, optimal double strategy. So I hope you enjoy this uh, this clip with Gigi Fernandez. So, and then, you know, one of the main things is, of course, to help your partner hold. And I always felt responsible when my partner didn't hold. I felt like it was my responsibility, and if she lost her server, it was my bad. It's funny, I was playing a, five, a USDA 5-0 match just last weekend, and we won 6-2, 6-2, but I lost my serve three times. Wow. So after the match, I said to my partner, hey, what, you know, what's going on? And she, didn't, she was like, you, you didn't get your first serve in and this and that. It was like, <laughs> you know, it's really, I mean, I, don't know, I didn't know how to nicely tell her that if, if I'm not holding, she's not helping. Um, but anyway, so I just always feel responsible at the net to help my partner hold, and that kind of has to be our mentality. So for the returner, where to stand, and you want to stand as close to this, uh, well, here you kind of want to favor, if you have a preferred ground stroke, you can try to favor that side. So it's a little bit personal preference. Uh, if you're looking for your forehand and you want to, you know, take a couple steps to your left if you can, um, and if you're favoring the backhand, vice versa. So, but, um, but one thing that I always tell people when they're playing lefties, make sure that they take automatically two 
one giant step or two steps to the left anytime you're playing a lefty. And that should be like without even having to think about it. So if you're standing uh, on the outside, inside the single sidelines, you should be almost halfway in the alley uh, to return because of that lefty wide serve. And the top three roles of the returner, of course, are to make the return. Uh, and I say, I tell my players to get the return over the net, not necessarily make it because a lot of uh, recreational players have this, uh, not, they, they don't judge uh, the balls that are going out so well. So they hit a lot of balls that are going out. So just try to get it over the net. Um, being steady, you know, and trying to set up the partner and then get to the net first. You know, one of the things I talk about, uh, we'll talk about is the importance of getting to the net and the return is the guaranteed shortest ball you're going to get because the ball has to land inside the service line. So best opportunity that sometimes you'll have in a game to get to the net is the return. So go ahead, go ahead and take that, that opportunity. And then the returns partner, I think, has the hardest position in the, in the court. They're, um, you know, a lot of times they're called the dead duck. Um, they, there's really nothing, you know, a lot, people tend to feel sort of like a fish out of water in this position. If your partner does not hit a good return, you're, you know, you're in trouble. Um, you know, one, one thing that's important here is that they call the serve. We want the returns partner always calling the serve for two reasons. The first one is that the returner should be solely focusing on returning and not trying to worry about calling the serve. But also if the returner is calling the serve, they're going to miss a lot of calls. They're going to call the ball incorrectly from the baseline. So if the ball lands in the service line, the returner's partner has a better angle at calling that. Um, so the top three roles for this person are to call the serve, keep their eyes on the service partner. Like don't turn around and watch. A lot of people will turn around and watch to see what kind of the shot the partner's uh, returning. But if you turn around, by the time you turn back, if your opponent has poached, you have no chance to react. Uh, and then after the return has passed the service partner, if they don't poach, then they have to move back in um, into the little neutral circle, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So let's talk about the difference between the singles court and the doubles court. And, you know, we've only really added, we added nine feet of space. The alleys are four and a half feet wide. Uh, so that's nine feet. And... It's really not that much space. I mean, if you stand and take one step and stretch your arm, that's more than seven feet. So really, with two people at the net, on really understanding what ball they should be covering, they shouldn't get past. And they sh for sure should not get past through the middle. And that's what we're going to uh, correct today with uh, proper positioning at the net. Um, so let's talk about the front court. So when we're standing at the net, where should we be standing? So I created this little grid that's really help players. So you're going to take the service box and break it in half right here, the orange line. And then you're going to break it in half again where the lines intercept. I call it neutral. Now notice that when I broke the box in half, I didn't include the alley. So I didn't say this is my half. That would put that X where over here, which would put this other X over here and this big gap in the middle. So I pretend when we're playing doubles, the alley does not exist. Okay. I don't mind the alley. I don't worry about it. I don't, care if people hit it in there um and in fact if you don't if you think people can hit shots in the alley uh what i do when when um when i'm doing when i'm talking about this and people look at me like i have three eyes i say okay why don't you go on the other side of the net and i'm going to feed you 10 balls and i feed him 10 backhands here and i see how many backhands can you get into this alley with me standing right here and usually it's it's level dependent like the five balls might get two 
the four fives might get one, the four O's and the three fives, they're lucky to get one. But that's when I feed from here. So I feed from here to here, and that's a straight shot. But now when I feed from here, they have to change the direction of the ball. When you change the direction of the ball in tennis, you add a level of complexity. So they uh, make zero. <laughs> you know, it may. So then I tell people, okay, if you can't make the shot, why are you covering it? And most people agree they can't make that shot. So, so why are you covering it? And when are you going to cover it? And that's you know, another, another subject. But for now, we're just going to pretend that alley doesn't exist. And if you're ever lost and don't know where to go, go to neutral. Now, if you take your racket and you, if you stand in the middle and you extend your, uh, your arm and you draw a circle around yourself, you create what I call the neutral circle. And now you should always be inside the neutral circle when you're at the net. The only reason to go outside of the circle is to go get a ball. So if you're poaching, you come out of the circle this way. If somebody sent the ball to the alley, then you move over there. If, uh, you're, if you're returning, what we just talked about, you're going to be standing here. But as soon as the return passes the um, service partner, then you got to get into your circle. Um, if you're up here, which I see a lot, people up you know, close to the net, you get lobbed. So make sure that when you're at the net, you're in, in, inside that circle. Now, when we created, um, when we broke the box in half and broke it in half again, we created these four quadrants. Quadrants one, two, three, four. Different things happen in each one of these quadrants. From the first quadrant, we're gonna we want to cover the alley. Now I've drawn here. I don't know if you if you can tell, but this gray line that goes here and here. This is the sixty foot court on the ten and under court, which is a lot of times drawn into um, some courts. So if you're uh, lucky enough to have that guide when you're playing you know that's great because that's the line that I tell people not, not to cross and that's really where the circle ends so you know if you have one foot in this little section here between the 60 foot court and the sideline if you have one foot there I can live with it but if as soon as you put two feet in here if you're on my court I'm yelling I'm yelling at you and I'm yelling hard because when you're standing here you're leaving all is court for your opponent, for your partner to cover. And I don't know about you, Marvon, but I don't want a partner that leaves you 90% of the court to cover. And they're covering the 1% you know, shot that someone might make. So from this quadrant one, we're going to cover the alley when we think the ball is going in the alley. But again, we're staying inside a circle, maybe an inching a little bit um, with one foot in that section. From quadrant two, we poach or we initiate our poach. Um, let's talk about poaching for a minute. Uh, a lot of people have trouble poaching because they move side to side. They try to poach this way and they come back and they go back and forth. Uh, you should be moving in a triangle. So if you're starting at this point of the triangle, which is a neutral point, then you try to poach towards the center strap. This is your center strap right here. Poach to center center strap. If you don't get that, you got to back up to the defensive position and then you move back to your point of the triangle and then you keep this triangular movement going on. Okay, this is happening with both players at the same time. Um, so that's your poach. A lot of times people will poach from the third quadrant and I don't like it because it's hard to put the ball away. Um, the closer you are to the net, obviously the easier it is to put it away. If you poach from the third quadrant and you don't put it away, you've left your half of the court open. So I tell people it's, you know, for sure not with a backhand volley, but people try to do a poach from back there with a the forehand volley. Um, from the third quadrant, what you want to do is defend. This is your defense zone. And then you can defend along this corridor as far back as you want. If you're feeling threatened, someone's hitting an overhead or they poached, uh, come back. Come back to the baseline or come back to no man's land on quadrant three. What most people want to do is they want to, they want to run to quadrant four. They want to run to this quadrant 
and they want to run off the court because they're scared. Now, so this quadrant I call no man's land. There's no reason to be standing here in doubles. Um, again, if you're feeling threatened, which is totally valid. I mean, I listen, I played mixed doubles against Goran Ivanisevic, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> Andy Roddick. They hit the, you know, what out of the ball. So I was scared. So quadrant three all the way back, you take away the middle, you give them the, the uh, alley, which is a lower percentage shot to hit, and hopefully they miss it. Uh, so that's your quadrants. Now, one of the, I think, key differentiators between the way I teach and the way I've seen people t- teach is this concept of staggering. Um, what I find is two players position even with each other. So here you can see one player is up, one player is back. And these are both examples of one's correct staggering, one's incorrect staggering. I'm going to tell you which one's correct in a minute. But the problem that I see with two players standing next to each other is that who gets the middle ball? Do you know, Marvin, who gets the middle ball when two players are standing next to each other? Uh, whoever has the forehand. That's the that's answer that I get the most. <laughs> what if you can't get it, right? What if it's too far away for, the, for, the, for uh, the forehand player? So really what happens when you're even with your partner is that when the ball is struck by number one up here, when your baseliner hits the ball, these two players have to make a split-second decision and decide whether the ball is you know, close enough to me or not close enough to me for me to get it. So it, this happens so fast that there's really – not much time for the players to decide. And what happens a lot, and I see this all the time, is either both players go to the ball and they crash into each other, or no one goes to the ball. And this is, and then the ball goes to the middle, which is a cardinal sin of doubles. Great stuff from Gigi. Uh, and now I'm going to play a clip for you um, from the session on Tennis Summit 2018, which again, you can check out at tennisfilesummit.com or tennisfiles.com slash summit18, whichever you prefer, um, with Alistair McCaw. Um, he is the founder of McCaw Method and uh, has written some great books, uh, including his latest one, Champion Minded. Uh, I highly encourage you to check that one out. And so he's going to talk about um, the mental aspect um, and um, really how to be champion-minded, which is uh, the key to, you know, all of us reaching the next level, really. So I hope you enjoy this clip from Tennis Summit 2018 with Alistair McCaw. If you don't mind, could you let us know, uh, you know, kind of how your morning routine is structured so maybe the audience in uh, Tennis Summit 2018 can, you know, perhaps emulate and, and modify for their own uh, benefit? Sure. Well, I have the 4 by 20 routine, which I'm sure um, a few people have heard of already if they've read champion-minded or uh, seven keys to being a great coach. I wake up each morning at 5 a.m. I make sure I get 20 minutes of reading in at least. I make sure I get 20 minutes of stretching or exercise in. I get 20 minutes of thoughtfulness, which is basically thinking about other people, uh, maybe somebody writing an exam that day, somebody playing a a tournament that day, uh, maybe somebody ill or somebody in my family. So I I purposefully put 20 minutes aside to thinking about others, send them a text, send them an email, whatever it may be. Um, And then uh, I take 20 minutes for breakfast because uh, sometimes we rush out the door grabbing something. And uh, for me, success is all about energy. If you don't have energy, you can't give energy. And uh, that's something for me that's very important. So Part of what I feel, part of my happiness, and I put happiness before success, my happiness and my, my uh, success has been 
getting hold of my morning routine. And I know I'm repeating that continuously right now, but getting off to a great start because I feel good about myself before I walk into work. Why? Because I've been able to gain some knowledge or gain some inspiration through my reading. I've been able to have some exercise, which makes me feel good. It's got the endorphins going. I've been able to give to others. I've been thoughtful about thinking about others first, about wishing them well for the day. And I've been able to get a great breakfast, which has given me great energy as well. And um, that's how I get off to a great start in my day. And when you get off to a great start, it kickstarts you for, for further on. I mean, you're walking into work. I mean, I mean, let me be honest right now. And this is not being critical or being judgmental, but I am no different to 90% out there. But let me tell you what the difference is, is that I've got energy and I've got a great in, uh, attitude because I adopt better habits and routines. And that doesn't make me better than somebody else. But when I walk into a gym or I walk into a club and I feel I have more energy, more confidence, and you know, some people are walking in there going, oh, the traffic was so bad and I feel so tired and I haven't trained and whatever it may be, is because they got up pretty much at the last moment. I got up three hours before them and I got already things done for myself, selfishly. It is not selfish to take care of your energy first, to put yourself first. Because if you can't lead yourself, you can't lead others. Simple. You know, people make excuses, you know, about, um, well, you know, I have a family and I have this and that. And I understand that. But then get up earlier if you want to make things happen. You know, that's how, that, that's how the most successful people operate. They have families as well. They have commitments as well, but they get up earlier and they make things happen. Beautifully put, Alistair. I mean, I used to, uh, like you said, you know, wake up at the last minute and rush to work. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, I decided to have the morning routine and then I would just feel so great at work because I knew, you know, oh, I worked a couple hours on my website. I exercise, I meditated. And I mean, it's just a world of difference. So I really appreciate you hammering that point home because it's very important. Um, and I wanted to get into uh, your goal setting because uh, you know you mentioned that you would plan the the previous day, uh, and and so if you don't mind to tell us just exactly how you know what what you're writing down, and you, you mentioned like you know what you do, but like how do you prioritize and how do you figure out what what you should be doing for the mm. next day? Yep. Each evening, I, I well, let, let me put it this way. In the morning, I start with gratitude. I start with two things I'm grateful for that, that gets me started in the morning, and that happens when I wake up. But in the evening, I have uh, time for self-reflection on what I did well that day, what I could have done better, who I made better. That's an important thing for me, which has helped me progress in my, in my personal growth. Um, but um, it's, it, it's about planning the night before what the priorities are for, for the next day trying to get those priorities done first thing and not leaving them later on in the day and uh, and then having goals for that day you know it could be uh, exercise or it could be um in meetings or with with clients whatever it may be or with the athletes so i have again we just spoke about recently a a game plan to the day i, I have a game plan to each day and at the end of, you know a lot of people have said to me you know ask me what drives you what drives me is at the end of the day, I know I have done my best and achieved what I set out to do. That drives me. And one of my fears is that I didn't achieve enough that day. So that's what drives me. But yeah, it's, it's about priorities. You know, people let other things get in the way, uh, phone calls, emails, 
uh, all these things, and then they don't get their most important things done. You have to make sure you get your most important things done. And for me, if you have more than two priorities, you don't have priorities. You just have things. You've got to have those two main things taken care of each day, whatever that may be. Awesome, Alice. I really appreciate that. Um, and so one thing, you know, regarding, uh, you know, players is they, they have a, a lack of, you know, confidence, um, you know, they don't think they're mentally tough. I know this is a very broad question, but how can players train themselves to be more mentally tough? That's a good question. And, and let me tell you where that starts. It starts with your foundational mental toughness. And, and I talk about that in, in the book, uh, Champion Minded, is that the way you are away from the court or away from the field or track or whatever sport you may play in, those foundational mental toughness routines and rituals and mindset, that's where it comes in. You know, if you're lazy, you're sloppy in your lifestyle, you get up late, you don't, you don't have a good breakfast, you don't have things sorted out in your day, you will become sloppy and lazy on the court as well or on the field. And that is so important is that it's, it's a 24-7 thing. The best performers live for what they do, be it in sports, entertainment, corporate, whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, you just can't switch it on when you walk to the court, the practice court, the gym, whatever it may be. It's the other, it's what I call the other 20, the other 20 being the other 20 hours of the day, because most elite athletes train four hours a day. So what are you doing in those other 20 hours? That is what's going to make you a champion in, in, in what you do, your habits, your routines, your nutrition, your naps, your recovery, um, how much sleep you're getting, all these things. That is what makes up a champion. So many times people look at what, want to know what players are doing on the court, in the gym. You know, what exercises are you doing? What drills are you doing? No, that's not, that's not, that is not going to make you better. It's what you're doing the other 20 hours first and then what you're doing on the court in the field. That's how it works. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. That's wonderful, Asser. I really appreciate that. And uh, obviously that is the, the most important, but I did want to also ask you, you know, like, let's say if you're training a player uh, and then you want to, you know, on the court or in the gym and you want them to, to undergo some sort of exercise that will make them develop like their grit uh, and determination. Are there any particular, you know, exercises or intense drills that, that you might have somebody do to, to help them, you know, exhibit more mental toughness? Yeah. You see, that's a thing in, in our industry where there's a big misconception with regards grit uh, of trying to make drills or exercises harder or, you know, grit isn't developed by taking an athlete to go do a tough uh, training camp or uh, take them to a cold place and make them swim and all these type of things. That that's That's not what mental toughness is. Mental toughness is a decision, a decision to embrace grit, to embrace difficulty, to embrace challenge. And, um, you know, it's, I, I believe it has a lot to do with your upbringing as well of, of how you've endured, uh, uh, toughness, how you endured challenge adversity 
Have you always been protected? Have you always been coddled? And that's the thing with parents these days as well is that they protect their kid every time something dramatic comes along. Uh, for me, I was dropped off when I was young, 10, 11, 12 years old. I was dropped off at tournaments and races by my parents and they wouldn't watch my sports and I'd have to deal with everything myself. I'd have to deal with my opponent's parents calling lines. I'd have to deal with tournament officials and so on and so on. And that is what taught me grit. And that is something I try to get out to parents today is let your kid fight their own battles. That is how you learn grit. If you're stepping in all the time, how do they develop that grit? They won't develop, develop that grit. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's one way I try and, I try and help, um, try and help the, the, the parents with, with sports kids these days. Great stuff from Alistair as always. Uh, he's definitely one of the most motivating individuals that I know. Um, and next up is Dr. Mark Kovacs, who uh, is really a legend to me. He's uh, just such a brilliant, uh, has a, such a brilliant mind. Um, he's a sports performance expert. Um, he founded the International Tennis Performance Association, of which I'm a very proud member. And he also founded the Kovacs Institute, which is really um, you know, discovering a lot of groundbreaking uh, stuff in regards to sports performance. And Dr. Kovacs uh, has been on the podcast, um, the Tennis Files podcast, as has Alistair, of course, um, two-time with Alistair. And so Dr. Mark Kovacs is going to talk on the summit about optimizing your movement, so how you can move better, uh, some really critical principles about that. So um, obviously I have a preview clip for you. And I really hope that you enjoy this preview clip and that it makes you want to, you know, dash over to TennisFilesSummit.com or TennisFiles.com slash Summit18 and sign up. And, you know, I forgot to mention that, you know, the Summit is totally free to join. And uh, obviously you do have the option of, um, you know, upgrading to lifetime access, um, which, you know, costs you less than, than the tennis lesson one, one of them. Um, but you know, it's, it's hundred percent free otherwise, if you don't choose to upgrade, which is totally cool. And, um, you know, uh, sessions like, like the ones I just played and the ones I'm going to play, uh, you know, they're in full video and, um, they're really fantastic and they're really going to show you how you can, you know, improve your game and become a better tennis player. So this is just the, uh, I guess midway encouragement for you all to, to check out the summit, but, um, in any case, here is my uh, here is a preview clip of Mark's session. One thing that came to mind is in regards to movement uh, at the net. Are there any principles or techniques or anything like that that are different at the net uh, as opposed to at the baseline that we should think about? Sure. So net movement is a different skill set to baseline movement. And, you know, you've got to really look back at some of the greats from previous generations that grew up playing on grass courts and were taught to volley as their primary stroke. And the, all the great net movers have the same movement mechanics. You know, they have a wide base, they're low, which means their glute strength uh, and their ability to have great leg strength uh, is, is allowing them to do that. If you look at all the great volleyers, they all had great great legs, their ability to use their legs effectively. So lunging movements and variations on lunging movements, wide lunges, linear lunges, multi-directional lunges, 45-degree lunges, all those lunging patterns is what makes good volleyers. Uh, and the great volleyers volley with their legs, not so much with their hands, meaning that their legs and their hips drive the movement 
and their hands come along for the ride. And the hands is the last segment of the bowling stroke, but all the work's already been done. So they've got their legs and their torso in the right position. They've got their energy transferring well. So the big difference between baseline and net movement is coming out of the split, how we utilize that first step, because that first step is really our driver. And that first step needs to either be the step we volley off if the ball's coming really fast, which means we may just volley off the outside hip and outside leg and the racket is in line with that, or we take that step and then we either go forward more than likely with our other leg, which allows our momentum to go into the stroke. So it's usually uh, that scenario where we're utilizing our body position at the net and really explosively coming out of the split to make make contact with the ball. Great stuff, Mark. And so uh, I'm just wondering if you've ever maybe trained or dealt with players who are probably not at the pro level, but that um, tend to, you know, when they split step at the net, they tend to kind of back away rather than, you know, stand their ground and volley forward. And because I mean, that you see that a lot at the uh, amateur level. And I was just wondering, you know, what you attribute that to and how that can be uh, trained. Great, great question. So the biggest thing with the split step, and I, I like to call it the decision step because it's really what you're doing. You're making a decision of where you're going to move forward, sideways, back, all those factors go into it. And typically the reason people back up off the split is because they've split at the wrong time. So you've got to actually time your split that when you're at the top of your split, you are already making your decision. Are you going left? Are you going right? Are you going forward? Uh, and the only time at the net you go back is if it's a lob. If it's not a lob, you should never be thinking back. All great volleyers split and split forward and move forward. So every recreational player that does have that tendency to split and take a step back or back off, uh, that's not an ideal way to, to prep for the volley. The challenge then becomes, are you possibly too close to the net? And a lot of volleyers were taught when they were sort of learning to get really close to the net and volley because it's easier, which is true. But if you've improved your level a little bit where you're actually starting to split at the right time and you're getting yourself in the right position, then we don't want to be too close because you, you do then have to back up and that's not an effective way to play at a relatively competitive level. So we know we've got a lot of different levels out there and a lot of different comforts as when it comes to coming to the net. But you should think, when I split, my first move should be in a forward diagonal type direction. It shouldn't be split, wait, go backwards. If you're doing that, that probably means your split is too late and you're possibly too close to the net to not allow yourself to actually keep moving forward. So it's better to split further back and have your movement pattern going forward than split really close to the net and then you've got nowhere to go. You've got nowhere to move forward. You always want your momentum to be going forward as best you can. Awesome, Mark. Great stuff. And then you, it's funny, um, you know, I, I, I read one of your articles or you've written so many, but there was one that where you mentioned that in the split step, the athlete actually uh, lands, not, uh, they're not both of their feet uh, land simultaneously, but rather the foot furthest from the ball actually lands uh, first. Um, can you kind of explain the, the reason for that? Sure. So, you know, when you to do a split movement and you're coming down, if it's done correctly, uh, you're making the decision at the top of the split as you're coming down and you know that you're going to go left or right. So if let's assume we're going to the left, 
Um, so if we're, uh, our right foot actually lands first. Our right foot, it's, it's milliseconds only. So that's, time, that's why in, in real time, so a lot of the time people don't notice it. They think they're landing at the same time. But if you actually slow it down and look at video of any of your pros, uh, you'll see them doing it correctly. So if we're going left, we're actually going to land on our right foot. And as we're landing, our left hip is externally rotating. So we're actually turning our hip and turning our foot as a result in the direction that we're going to move to. And that allows us to gain a little bit of extra position. So we've, we're already starting to move. But our plant leg, which is our right leg, uh, that is allowing us to have our base of support stable. And we're pushing off our left leg in the direction that we're trying to go. So that saves us time. It's a way more efficient, uh, and those two things make a huge difference. And that's, that's milliseconds when it comes to one movement, but that's the difference between, between making contact at optimum strike zone versus hitting the ball below your knees. So it doesn't sound like much, a few milliseconds, but there's a huge difference when it comes to strike zone position and whether you're hitting an offensive shot or more of a defensive shot. That's great. Great stuff, Mark. Yeah, it, you know, it makes me think of having the, uh, the leg on the other side allowing you to, to you know, push off um, and, and go uh, quickly to the ball. And, uh, yeah, that's a great uh, thing to keep in mind there instead of, you know, trying to mechanically just plant both feet when you split step. And also on the, regarding the split step, Mark, you know, I'm just wondering, and maybe this varies among players, but – What's the optimal kind of explosiveness on the split step or the, you know, the jump? I mean, what should, how should we think about it, uh, you know, to make it, uh, make a split step effectively? So the split has 100% to do with what ball is coming to you. So that's the first piece of it. There's a huge reaction component to splitting correctly and split, um, splitting appropriately. So it's hard to say, hey, every split step should be look like this or have this much width between their feet or should have this much first step distance and things like that. I mean, we've studied a lot of that when it comes to, okay, how big should the first step be? How many, how many centimeters or inches should it be? How wide should their base of support be? Uh, and it depends a lot in the strategy whether you're anticipating to move a large distance or whether you're anticipating to move a relatively small distance, meaning let's say you've hit the ball cross-court and there's a 70 to 80% likelihood that the ball is going to come back cross-court to you. So therefore, you don't need to split and, and be prepared to run all the way across the baseline because of the trajectory of your ball, what you expect your opponent to do, any pointers that you're picking up in, in their stroke. All those things are being processed as the ball's traveling. And as the ball's coming back, you already know I, I'm not moving that far. I don't need to do as much. So from a standpoint of explosiveness and trying to figure out how much should someone do, when we're training, we always want to train for our extreme scenarios, our toughest environments. So we always train the split, assuming the athlete has to cover a large distance, has to go from, say, single sideline to single sideline in you know four steps to five steps so a run a big running forehand what type of split mechanics do we use on that scenario or when they return and they hit a weak return and then they have two-thirds of the court that they have to cover because their opponents hit a blasting shot and they have to get there so that's the way we train it we want to train them for their toughest environments because their more basic environments or their rallying cross-court environments 
most of the time the split is done reasonably well. Um, and there's not uh, there's enough time that they can make up that even if it's not done perfectly sometimes, they can still recover because there's li- limited distance that they need to travel. Right. Good stuff, Mark. And, and so in one of your articles, I also read, you know, the, there's three different techniques um, after the split, which is the, the jab, pivot, and gravity step. And I was just wondering if you uh, don't mind explaining those techniques and then what typical, you know, scenarios would we tend to use each one of those? Sure. So, you know, these, um, the way these steps were devised was from basketball, actually. So this, this terminology has been around over a hundred years. So we haven't created names for these. These are just how people move and there's way more movements as we know, but in general, coming off the split, you have what the jab step, which is really your foot and leg that's closest to the ball that you're going or the direction that you're going is the step is the first step that you really take the big step out. So you still land on like we discussed previously, you're moving to your left, you're going to land on your right. And then that left leg is going to externally rotate and take a step. That's called the, you know, the jab step. The pivot step is when you actually come down and you land a little bit more on the left uh, and then the right foot actually comes all the way across your body in the direction that you're trying to go to. So you're pushing off the right to gain a bit more distance of that first step. And that you usually see that as either the second step sometimes off the split, or if it's the first major step, it's, you, it's usually done if we're only going to take one step and hit a shot. So basically your hips have rotated. Uh, so that's where that scenario is utilized. And then the gravity step is usually a scenario when an athlete gets wrong-footed, meaning that their body's leaning to the left, but then they have to quickly move to the right. And then your foot, your outside foot, actually comes under your center of mass, and that allows you then to shift your weight and change direction. So it's not really a step we like people to use, or you know, it's pretty much used if you've got yourself in trouble or your opponent's wrong-footed you, and you need to change direction from thinking you're going to the left, and now you have to explosively go to the right. Awesome stuff. Mark's the man. And uh, next up, we have uh, the final clip for this um, preview of Tennis Summit 2018 is Jeff Rothschild. He is the creator of EatSleep.Fit, and he also works at TriFit LA uh, in California. And uh, he is an expert uh at uh, all things uh, nutrition he's a registered dietitian and so we actually uh his session is focused on um carbohydrates sports drinks and dealing with the heat so definitely a really cool session and very pertinent to our performance especially when it gets hot um, but really at any time so uh, i really hope that you in- uh, enjoy um, this preview clip of uh our session on Tennis Summit 2018 with Jeff Rothschild. Cool. So, all right. So let's move on to talk about some sports drinks. So before we do that, though, we we talked about how much we sweat a minute ago, but we also want to think about what do we actually sweat? Okay, so what's in our sweat? Well, it's mostly sodium chloride or salt, okay? And and potassium is really just a very small part of it. So it's about 93 or, or so percent sodium. So this means our sweat sodium losses, if we do the math, can be anywhere between like 600 milligrams per hour and 6,000 milligrams per hour. So there's a huge uh, inter-person variation 
also the same person that will actually vary with the seasons. So a simple way to do it, you can measure your sweat sodium concentration. That's certainly not necessary. What you can do though is know, are you kind of on the salty side or not so salty side? If you're someone who who sees salt rings on their shirts, like if you wear a black shirt to play and then you see those white lines, that that's a good indicator that you're a pretty salty sweater. And if you never see those lines, then it's an indicator that you're, you know, you're not losing quite as much sodium. So, but generally speaking, it's mostly sodium that, that we lose in sweat. Mm. Okay. So I want to just address this right off the bat because coconut water always comes up uh, and it sounds like a good sports drink and it's often touted as that, but um, I want to take a little bit of a closer look at it before we even address any of the other sports drinks. So if we compare the sodium concentration of coconut water to Gatorade Endurance, which is Gatorade has a, a formula geared towards endurance sports, which is effectively just higher in sodium and Scratch, which is a popular sports drinks uh, among cyclists and triathletes. So if we see that coconut water has very little sodium and Gatorade and Scratch have quite a lot. And then if we look at potassium, coconut water has a ton of potassium and Gatorade Endurance has a little bit and Scratch has almost nothing. So we can look at these two drinks and say, yes, coconut water is the perfect sports drink. It's nature sports drink. And these two large companies with great sports scientists working for them totally screwed up. or more likely is that the companies do, doing the, the research on hydration and, and fueling realize that it's mostly all about sodium during exercise and potassium, while certainly important in our daily life, is really not necessary on the court or during exercise. So I've had several and some even high level tennis players, um, you know, complain of cramping and things and drinking coconut water on the, on the court. And I just certainly not advised by me. So I, it's, it's definitely like, uh, I'm not a fan, I guess, as you can kind of tell what I'm getting at. Um, it's just not, it's just not what you need during exercise. It's great. Again, maybe after exercise, or if you just want it, it, some kind of drink, um, you know, at, at home, but on, on the court, it's just not appropriate. We can look at Gatorade and I'm not, you know, a big fan of Gatorade. The biggest reasons are, you know, it, it has some, some, uh, yellow five. I don't know that we want to really be drinking a whole lot of certain chemicals, but it's, it's giving you carbohydrate and giving you a reasonable amount of sodium. Okay. So kind of, and, and the, the main carbohydrate is sugar. So it's, it's effectively sugar, sugar and some salt okay, and some artificial flavors and colors. Hmm. That is not the worst thing because during the exercise, if you think about sugar, it's like putting wood onto a fire. If you drink a Gatorade at your desk while you're working, that is ill-advised. But in the middle of exercise, again, at, at, during a high-intensity exercise, um, it, most of it, at least 80% of what you're drinking, is going to be burned directly by your muscles. So it's really not that big of a deal. Scratch, as I mentioned before, it's a drink that I like. Um, it's similar to Gatorade in basically sugar and salt. Um, there's no artificial colors or flavors, so it's a little bit it's like cleaner, for lack of a better word. And it's got a little bit more sodium per serving. The, the label is deceptive because it's per eight ounce serving. Um, but basically it's, it's mostly sugar um, with some salt, but in the right concentration to optimally hydrate yourself. So it, it's something that I like and I'll, I will recommend. Gatorade Endurance, as I mentioned, um, this is really interesting because they actually reformulated this product uh, last summer. So the old labels on the right, and as you see, it's, it was very similar to regular Gatorade, but just with more sodium, a little bit more sodium. And the main sugar was, or main carbohydrate was sugar. But they've since reformulated it based on uh, uh, emerging sports science research 
to have these different carbohydrate sources. You see at the bottom, sugar, maltodextrin, and fructose. And there's very good reasons to have these different types of carbohydrates in there. We don't have to get into it here, but suffice it to say, I, I, I'm actually impressed that um, they, they took you know, new research and, and really changed the product considerably. So it's high in sodium, and it has these multiple types of carbohydrates, which um, when you're taking a lot in over a long duration, that's actually a really good thing. So this is something that I would say, yeah, that, that's usable. Um, it's not my personal favorite just from a taste standpoint, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's okay. This uh, noon has gotten pretty popular. Um, and this is important to notice because this is really just electrolytes. So the sodium, they have a, a good amount of sodium, 360 milligrams, but basically no carbohydrates. So four grams. That, we'll, we'll come back to the, to the amounts that we should be taking in in a minute, but so you can't equate noon, you can't say I'm taking noon or Gatorade. They're, they're really different things because one has a lot of carbohydrates and some sodium. One is basically just sodium. So that, that's, there's a key difference there. If you're trying to get fueled through a long workout, noon alone is not going to do it for you. Now, if you do noon plus uh, uh, some dates or some other carbohydrate source, that's okay. But it's, it's, there's a distinct difference between a sports drink and this uh, basically electrolyte drink. So here's a, just a, a, a basic table of several other popular sports drinks. And really what I want to point out is that um, for a given carb amount, the sodium content can, can differ quite drastically. And now how do you know which one is right for you? Well, like I said before, if you are a salty sweater and you see these lines on your clothing, then you want to aim for something higher in sodium, such as uh, like Gatorade Endurance or the Scratch. And if you're not such a salty sweater, then maybe something like Cytomax or Gatorade could be appropriate for you. So this is what we looked at before, and now we have a little bit more context. So if you're, if you're training less than 75 minutes, someone might say, oh, well, I'll just do electrolytes like the noon, but you don't really need it. You're not running out of electrolytes in, in an hour and 15 minutes. You're not running out of carbohydrates in your body, presuming you've eaten properly before this. Um, so you could do small amounts or like I said, water only is fine. If you're playing one to two hours of intense, uh, intense training, 30 grams an hour is a good target. So it's basically one bottle of sports drink per hour. Or like I said, you could do um, noon or water plus uh, like a banana is about 27 or 30 grams of carbs or a couple of dates or something like that or some other type of gel. Two to three hours, again, you just have to either drink more or um, combine the drink with some type of food. So if we review now what we've gotten up where we've come so far now carb intake we know that can delay fatigue and improve performance during extended exercise so anytime we're talking about longer than about 75 to 90 minutes of exercise it's pretty clear it's very clear that carbohydrate intake can delay fatigue and improve performance so if there's a question if you feel like you're playing hard for, for longer than that time there's there's very little question that there will be some benefit again if you're playing hard enough again with the drinking we want to drink enough to prevent excess body weight loss. So that 2% is really our, our kind of uh, cutoff point. And then choosing the right drink, again, based on your sodium needs, uh, based on your carbohydrate needs, based on your preferences. Uh, does that all make sense so far? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Um, and if I could ask some questions, and sorry, this one might be dumb. but So like in the first slide on this section, you had, um, it was obviously sodium and potassium. And then what, the third element that was about 40% was what? Oh, it was chloride. So sodium chloride is, is basically salt together. So together, sodium and chloride was basically salt makes up about 93%. 
Awesome. So you don't really have to like look for that specifically. It's correct. And and a lot of a lot of drinks will will like promote or market that they have all these other electrolytes in there, but it's really not necessary. Gotcha. 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 And then as far as, you know, your favorite or maybe like ones that you see most like tennis players use, like what are a couple of those that you usually see? Yeah. Uh, scratch works well for a lot of people. Uh, Max also works well. Those would, you know, maybe be two go-tos. One is higher in sodium scratch. Uh, Cytomax is a little bit lower in sodium. Um, yeah, that, I think that's a good place to, um, but you know, the Gatorade, like I said, uh, people, people give Gatorade a hard time. And I'm just, I don't, I'm not that bothered by it the way people just see it as it's like evil conglomerate and, and yeah, kids, kids playing a video game or something, uh, or, or people that don't exercise do not need Gatorade. So I'm sure there is the vast majority of people of Gatorade consumed is by people not doing exercise. And I'm not a fan of that. So let's be, let's be clear on that. But for, we're talking about people trying to, to play tennis harder, longer, better. Uh, there's, there can be some benefit there. That's right. For sure. Uh, especially with the carbs. And then you, like you said, you got to earn your carbs yeah. and uh side note, you know, I got really pissed off when Gatorade like discontinued like the Gatorade ice because they, I, yeah. I hate like the artificial flavors or sorry, colors. And so then they eliminated that and I was kind of annoyed. So <laughs> if Gatorade you're listening, please bring it back. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you all really enjoyed this preview of tennis summit 2018. That's been a, a lot of hard work putting it all together, you know, 30 plus um, presentations and uh, interviews and, you know, all the other logistics and whatnot and, and setup of the site. But um, it's all good because it's uh, it's really extremely valuable to, s- to see so many that uh, will watch and learn from so many, <clears throat> excuse me, of the best coaches and experts in the world. And I uh, really highly encourage you to check all this out because it's totally free, as I mentioned. Um, all you do is just go to TennisFilesSummit.com or TennisFiles.com slash Summit18. Um, you go to that page, you know, through one of those links. And you can also see the link in the um, on the notes page as well at TennisFiles.com slash 60. I know there's a lot of links here, but you basically go to this the uh, Tennis Summit 2018 site and then you just click... Um, and then you just enter in your email and then you'll be registered and then you'll get all the emails, um, each day of the sessions, um, six days in total. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you'd like, you can upgrade, um, so that you can watch all the sessions anytime you want, you know, you'll have lifetime access, um, to those. And, uh, you know, if you choose the free option, it's all good. Um, they, you know, each session, once they're published, they'll be up for two days um, from when they're published. And uh, so, yeah, I really encourage you to, again, check out TennisFilesSummit.com or TennisFiles.com slash Summit18 uh, to, to check out um, this incredible event. It's definitely going to be huge, um, bigger than last year. Incredible speakers on it. Like I mentioned, Paul Anacone, Gigi Fernandez. Um, Craig O'Shaughnessy, Alistair McCaw, Dr. Mark Kovacs, Dr. Niru Jayanti, um, and uh, Jeff Greenwald, and, and so many other incredible um, speakers on there. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate you all listening to this episode. And I just highly encourage you to keep seeking out uh, the best resources you can to improve your game. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the summit on April 25th. All right, have a great one, and uh, we'll see you at the summit. Take care, everyone. 
Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.